0: Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger Podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall. And today I'm very happy to be talking to Miguel Blacute. Uh, It's been too long, Miguel. I know we've been talking, but it's been a while since you've been on the podcast. And I think a heck of a lot's been going on with you. I think if people follow Miguel over social media, you probably have somewhat of an idea, but um, there's been a lot going on. And uh, even with kind of his What he's been doing for Revive Stronger has changed slightly, becoming kind of head of science, uh, no longer a coach for the reasons of what we're probably going to talk a little bit more in depth about because uh, he's really getting into kind of his academics and uh, doing some really exciting stuff. So I won't blab on any longer, Miguel. Uh, You can let everyone know how exciting everything is looking for you 2020. And I guess you can recap a bit of what happened at the end of 2019 for you.
1: Absolutely. So first of all, thank you very much for having me on. It's always such a pleasure to, to be on here and talking to you, Steve. You have such legendary guests on here.
0: Well, thank you. And you are one of them. And just so the listeners know, it's not just going to be a, a like chit-chat between me and Miguel. I didn't kind of allude to the stuff. We're going to be covering some really interesting stuff, some kind of big purveying myths that maybe aren't myths and people think they are, and it's just became or become rather a little bit confused within the evidence-based industry, I think for some people. So anyway, Go on, Miguel. Myths Let's that people listen. don't know
1: are myths. Essentially, yeah. <laughs> um, cool. So I guess the last time I was on here, I think it was when I was discussing GDAs, CBD, and muscle damage, which was uh, I think at the end of 2019, maybe halfway through it. Um, essentially, at that point, I was very adamant about studying exercise science, and I was applied. I was applying to master's degrees um, in that, and I actually ended up. Uh, Rather than studying exercise science, I ended up uh, studying, uh, taking up a, a graduate degree at Columbia University in applied physiology. Um, sort of lead, leading into that, I became close with a researcher at Yale Medical School who brought me over to Yale Medical School uh, where I studied uh, behavioral psychology and, and, and neuroscience. Um, and there at Yale Medical School, um, as you know, I've, I've told you, that was just like the most changing experience of my life. The first time that I was truly exposed to a medical environment and I saw the medical applications to um, neuromuscular science and the stuff that we do. I mean, we tend to focus a lot on like what goes right when it comes to neuromuscular science. When you look at what goes wrong in diseases like ALS, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, Huntington's disease, that just absolutely changed my life immediately. And my focus became rather so much on, on exercise science, uh, more on on neuroscience and specifically neurodegeneration. So uh, once I finished my research at Yale, I went to to Columbia uh, where my research uh, became entirely focused on neurodegeneration and computational neuroscience, uh, specifically looking at, at these diseases where we currently have no answer for. I mean, like, one of the most devastating things to me to know is that, like if, if someone gets cancer at the end of the day, they have hope. It's like most of the times you will have, hey, you can do this treatment, this treatment, this treatment. If someone has ALS, it's like you're, you will be dead in one to two years and there is nothing anyone can do about it. There are some medications right now that can slow it down. But essentially, that's what really changed my mind about what to study. Um, and, and since I, I arrived to Columbia, I have been offered a position to go study uh, um, Uh, satellite cell uh, therapeutics at oxford university so essentially it's very very cool because the things that we do study about like how they go right can help people where things are going wrong so at oxford essentially what we're doing is we're going to be studying these therapeutics so that we can uh, stimulate satellite cell proliferation in people who have uh, muscular damage due to diseases so if someone has Duchenne's muscular dystrophy and they aren't being able to contract their muscles leading to eventual death or people who have cancer cachexia, or people who have sarcopenia we are looking to be able to to will essentially develop drugs that are going to help us stimulate satellite cell proliferation to be able to repair these uh these, these people or at least give them a little bit longer quality of life um, and, then, and then on top of that, I'm also conducting sports science research, although the majority of my research is in neuroscience. I still love sports science and I still write about sports science and, 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 and am involved with it. Um, for example, I'm conducting a string of studies with Dr. Andy Galpin at CSU Fullerton. Um, on on the effects of time restricted feeding on anabolism and 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 body composition and some anabolic pathways, uh as well as conducting research with the UCLA medical school in which we are looking at uh, sort of the psychopathology of muscle dysmorphia and disordered eating in a group of resistance trained men. So a lot of a lot of diverse stuff, uh medical neuroscience and then kind of like sports science on the side because I love it and because like once you're bodybuilder, you can never walk away from it.
0: No, I love that. And I think uh in a sense, I don't know, it sounds a bit funny to call it like this, but you, I guess you felt like you had a bit of a higher calling in that you could be doing something potentially more impactful for people. We're talking about kind of life and death versus kind of like body changes um, or rather body composition changes. So I can completely see that that kind of drove your passion to be able to help people that way but I can also respect the fact that you still want to keep your dip your foot back in kind of sports science and everything there because at the end of the day that probably gives you a lot of kind of fuel and kind of respite from the neuroscience stuff I imagine and if if it's something you really enjoy and you love then you're going to keep doing it and I imagine also I don't know where you were when you last um, spoke to us in terms of your kind of back injury how's your own training going you still training or have you just become a complete bookworm now go.
1: <laughs> so I actually managed to rehab that quite well. I was working with Dr. Quinn Hannock for like a year and a half. He is just a magician. Like, Oh my goodness. He was absolutely amazing. Um, he delivered such incredible service that I, I look up to him, not only as a pain scientist and as a doctor of physical therapy, but as a coach and someone who was just the highest level of professional I could, I could aspire for. Um, the, the 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 back pain is pretty much gone. Um, I can squat and dead. I still have to be somewhat careful, especially when I really want to increase volume. I really have to be careful with increasing sets. Um, but if I don't do anything that's like overly aggressive, I'm a hundred percent fine. Um, and then in terms of training, I was I was training quite consistently until about the last six weeks of school, which is where both finals kicked in, and I had uh, I had to submit like three abstracts in. I had I have like about 10 to 15 studies going on right now with within my master's degree by the way most people get one during their entire master's degree so just like give the listeners right like, <laughs> kind of an insight on how ridiculous my life is so then after that it just got to a point where i was like something needs to go and if i'm already sleeping like four hours a night because i have so much to do it doesn't make sense for me to sleep like two and a half hours so I can spend an hour and a half at the gym.
0: (laughs) Oh God. Yeah. I, I, uh, (laughs) you're doing the work of 15 men. So, or women Um, and men. um, So yeah, I can only imagine (laughs) how hard that must be to manage, but hopefully, it's going to have like a bit of downtime in future and you'll be able to get back on it, I'm sure, at some point. And something uh, we are going to be discussing today, and well, we'll come on to fasting hopefully a bit later, but if we don't have time, I'm sure we can get you back on and maybe even touch on some of the research that you're doing with Andy, which is really exciting. But I wanted to start with uh, intuitive eating because it's become far more popular over the last year, I would say. It's really started to become more popular, at least within our niche. Um, I don't know if it's kind of outside of that. It's got kind of massively popular, there are obviously some few key books on it, Uh, but I think maybe there's some misunderstandings, I think some people just hear the word and they think they know the definition. I'd love you first of all to just talk about um, the definition within the literature Um, and maybe you can also touch on what you commonly see as what people presume is the definition.
1: Awesome. So I think the first thing that we need to discuss when talking about intuitive eating, and I think that one of the reasons there's a lot of confusion about it and how it should be used. So first of all, we need to make sure that people understand that intuitive eating is not meant to be used as a weight loss or weight gain or weight modulation method. Um, and, And I think that a lot of confusion comes because of that, because people will be like, no, you can't use intuitive eating to lose weight or to gain weight or whatever. So it has no application to like sports science or whatever. It's like, yeah, like, Intuitively, you're not going to eat at a calorie deficit like most of the time or, or, or to gain weight because like, that's not what your intuition is telling you. Your body kind of wants to remain at homeostasis. Um, but to really get into the nitty gritty definition of it, intuitive eating has four main components. Those are the unconditional permission to eat uh, and eat when you're hungry and the food that is desired. Uh, two, it is eating for physical rather than emotional reasons. Three, it is to rely on your internal hunger signals to determine how much you are going to eat. And four is to honor your health. So in short, intuitive eating is this process where you are eating Based on your intuition, you are giving yourself unconditional permission to eat without any guilt, but you are still paying attention to your overall health. And I think that this is one of the one of, one of the ways in which people get confused because they think that, okay, well, with intuitive eating, we're just eating Pop-Tarts and cereal all day and just like disregarding your health. It's just like, okay, I feel like Ben and Jerry's 24-7, so I'm going to eat Ben and Jerry's 24-7. But if we look at the literature definition of it, one of the main, main, main components of it is that we are still paying attention to overall health um and another way that i think that people get confused about intuitive eating is that people think that intuitive eating means simply not tracking macros Right now, I can get someone who's very into tracking macros and just be like, OK, well, I'm taking your food scale away and I'm taking your my fitness pal away. Now you have to not track macros just because they're tracking macros doesn't mean they're being any more intuitive. People can be just as unintuitive with their eating without tracking macros. They can continue to eat like nine pound salads and they can continue to classify foods as good or bad and they can they can continue to absolutely ignore their their body's hunger signals and eat just as unintuitively to really eat, eat intuitively you have to listen to your body's hunger signals and you have to be able to listen to, you have to be able to eat foods without feeling any sort of guilt or any sort of of way about them it can't be a thing where you're like i'm eating this this food because i ate these things earlier on or because i have these sort of cold it's like if you reach the end of the day and you feel like eating a cheeseburger you eat that cheeseburger and you don't you don't kind of think about okay well I had a bowl of cereal so maybe I can't have the bun or maybe I had an avocado earlier so I can't have the cheese or the bacon or whatever the case is you eat the cheeseburger and you don't feel two ways about it um, or on the other hand if you're not very hungry you eat a salad but you don't eat the salad because you are restricting your calories you don't eat the Salad because you had the cheeseburger earlier on. You eat the salad because the salad seems appetizing to you and maybe because you want the health properties of that salad. But again, you don't feel any sort of, of guilt around it. So I think that's kind of like the, the main thing that we need to, to, to establish right away is that intuitive eating is not a weight loss method. It's not a weight gain method. Um, it is simply a way to eat without feeling any sort of guilt while still prioritizing your overall health, not just eating Pop Darts and, and, and cereal all day long. Does that make sense, Steve?
0: It does. And I think. For me, I think it's always been something that has always sounded like it should be maybe a goal to get and utilize it at times. And I think even when I like go on holiday, for example, and I'm not specifically tracking, like you mentioned, and I'm still aware completely of what I'm eating, and I, I can't remove myself from many of the many of them very positive habits, but potentially um, kind of restrictive habits in some ways. So I don't know if you have any, and I would presume in the literature, they don't have the ability to do this sort of thing just yet, at least. Uh, people who have like come from tracking and then trying to go intuitive, does it, is that possible? Do you feel like people who have got that background of they kind of specifically know what they should be roughly having can then go truly intuitive? Or um, is there a kind of, do you think there's a structured approach you could do?
1: I think that it requires time. I think that uh, just like anyone, as soon as you kind of stop tracking right right away, you're still going to think about, okay, well, this food has this amount of protein or carbs or fats. This is what I need for my goals. But I think that after a certain amount of time, and after truly allowing yourself to kind of eat unconditionally and kind of slowly walk away from those rigid habits that you may have, you're going to find yourself slipping into a more intuitive approach where it's the question no longer becomes like, okay, well, I need to have fifty grams of carbs. It's like well, I should probably eat, eat, eat a carbohydrate. Maybe let's eat an apple. And then it's like, Oh, I just want an apple. Like let's disregard the fact that I was carbohydrate. Um, and I think also one kind of thing that, that kind of gets lost in translation is that people are kind of going to camps like, oh, either we eat intuitively or we eat, you know, more of a, a flexible restraint or, or rigid restraint or whatever the case is. But for example, Steve, people like you who like for a very long period of time, you're bulking, you're massing and really you can't do do that intuitively. So I think that neither camp should kind of get really caught up in, in what they're thinking because their what what they what their approach kind of leads to may not lead to the goal that the individual person may have.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the only other thing I was wondering was, um, you talked about kind of how it's obviously it's kind of, you're not restricting yourself. If you kind of want to eat food, you eat it. However, there's also the kind of guideline of it needs to be somewhat healthful. So how does someone tackle, like, like you said, they want to eat a cheeseburger, but also they need to consider health within that. How do they make that decision for themselves? How how, do you kind of know what I'm trying to say there?
1: Right. so kind of, it's interesting because a part of intuitive eating, especially intuitive eating as described by, uh, by the book that everyone kind of uses as their Holy grail. A part of that is that they actually recommend that you at first, just not really, you know, rigidly track your food on my fitness pal or whatever, but the, that you at least like write down what, what you're eating and, and look it up and, and kind of try to learn a little bit about nutrition. That way you you have the knowledge necessary to be like, okay, well, this food is maybe a little bit less or more nutritious than another food. But that's pretty much the thought that kind of goes into it. It's like, okay, well, is this food less or more nutritious, less or more energy dense or, or whatever the case is? But it's pretty much like that's just like a, a rough ball estimate that, they, that you kind of throw out there. There's no dichotomy of like high calorie, low calorie, good, bad. It's just kind of like, eh, well, like I feel like this food, screw it, let's, let's eat it.
0: Cool. Yeah. I think I've, uh, I can't remember. I've got the picture of the book in my mind and I remember actually I read it on holiday a few years ago and I remember reading it and really picking things out. I was like, lots of it is very similar to intuitive, uh, sorry, flexible dieting. A lot of the kind of ideas and principles behind it felt kind of like it's just not restriction, um, and kind of with the idea of being healthful. So, um, yeah, I really kind of Appreciate that definition. I think it makes it much clearer. And I wonder if is there anything that kind of you think separates intuitive eating to mindful eating? Obviously, that's also something that's become more popular as well. But I think mindful eating is probably something a little bit more goal specific. Right.
1: I think that so intuitive eating, as described by the book of intuitive eating, I think is a little bit too extreme. I think that mindful eating, honestly, if I I think that you know, when 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 I propose this podcast uh, uh, sort of topic is it's very important to clear the air about intuitive eating but i also think that intuitive eating or at least where intuitive eating is taking is kind of taking things to an extreme i think that that the concept of mindful eating or informed eating or whatever people are calling it is probably a little bit more beneficial simply because as you said there are things um that kind of bypass our natural ability to gauge food and to sort of be like, okay, well, I'm, I'm only going to uh, eat until I'm full or whatever the case is. Because if we kind of think about our, our what we would eat in, in our natural habitat, that would be things like, um, you know, like meat, some lean proteins, uh, vegetables, some starches here and there, et cetera, et cetera. And these are things that are re- realistically kind of hard to overeat on um, and, and hard to really gain a massive amount of weight on or kind of hard to really also lose a massive amount of weight on. When we kind of start to dig into foods that have been like engineered to taste as good as possible and have had like millions of, and millions of dollars to be like, OK, how can we get people to eat as much of this food and buy as much of this food as possible that bypasses your natural instincts to, to eat foods to satiety and to kind of have that like almost uh, unconditional permission to eat. So I really like the concept of the mindful eating because we take into account, OK, well, let's eat Let's give ourselves that, that unconditional permission to eat. Let's, let's give ourselves that ability to eat whatever we want with no guilt and not have either weight gain or weight loss in, in, in planning. However, let's also pay attention to the fact that this tiny bite of food has like 1,500 calories. We also have to be mindful of, of those things. And I think that when we combine the nutritional knowledge with intuitive eating and we put it together into this concept of like mindful eating or informed eating or educated eating, or whatever people are calling it these days, that's when you get an approach that is truly um, probably the best for the general population. Again, if we're talking about athletes, because I know that a lot of people are, are, are listening to this, are bodybuilders, are powerlifters, are people that are reaching to, to, to a new height of human performance, this may not be the best approach for you, because realistically you might have to put down 5,000 calories, or you might have to put down like Twelve hundred calories because you're, you're you're prepping and if you listen to your intuition and if you're like super mindful of what you're eating you're never going to get there because either you're going to get too full or you're going to be starving and you're not going to be able to actually like intuitively eat twelve hundred calories. So if you are coaching general population, if you are in the general population yourself and you're like hey I just want to maintain my weight, it is probably beneficial to go ahead and and practice some type of intuitive eating or mindful eating or just kind of combine the two, to find whatever hybrid of, of whatever works for you and that's also another thing is that I think that people get way too caught up in definitions of like I follow this approach or I follow that approach like how about we just kind of find an approach that doesn't give you an eating disorder and that you can realistically follow
0: yeah I really like that and I think that touches on something I was going to ask you is that I don't think like you can't it's not like you're in a camp I I always track I'm track macros that's all I ever do it's kind of like you could utilize kind of mindful, intuitive eating at various time points, even as a competitor uh, for, say, bodybuilding. Uh, I wonder what you think to kind of how, where where would you apply it? What kind of practical ways could you apply for someone who might be the bodybuilder or like a true physique enthusiast who most of the time they have kind of lofty goals? I
1: think for a bodybuilder, I would probably apply it like I would probably like to see them after a contest prep period before they get into any serious massing, probably have them in a period of their intuitively eating just so they can like regain that ability to gauge food properly and have a normal relationship with food without it being either, ah, I wish I could eat more food or like, a- I, I can't eat anymore. Like, I'm just absolutely done with this. Probably, you know, between a period of like, you know, we're, we're back to normal, we're at a healthy body fat, we have a good relationship with food again. And before that point, we're like, okay, let's mass in, in preparation for whatever is happening next. There should probably be a point there where people are, are taking some time really, really working on the relationship with food and just on the ability to eat food without feeling two ways about it. You know, just kind of eating food like you did when you were a teenager where it's like, okay, well, my parents made burgers. So like, I'm going to eat that. And then maybe like, I'm going to go for an ice cream or like, maybe not because I'm not all that hungry. Um, And and one thing that I will say is that I probably have the most intuitive relationship with food I've ever had simply because of, well, now I'm, I'm grad student and I don't have really time to be thinking about food. It's like, okay, well the cafeteria has free burgers or ribs or whatever. I'm going to go get that and I'm going to eat until I'm moderately full or like, you know, maybe this food's on sale or maybe like McDonald's is having a sale. And I'm going to go eat that. And that's pretty much what, what my diet has consisted of It's like, there's, there's really not a lot that goes into it other than like, does this food have protein? Cool. Um, am I eating it until I'm moderately full? yes, cool. And then like, there's no, there's no other thought that really goes into it.
0: Cool. Yeah, I like that. And I think, uh, it's interesting. I think like bodybuilders don't often think that they want to maintain, but I think in the literature is coming out that potentially even for training, kind of having these kind of resensitization periods we had Cody Horn coming on, it's like, well, maybe you could combine one of your lower volume training periods with some intuitive eating and you almost, reset your psychology as well for kind of getting back into tracking macros again, because I think some people find that stressful. I think some people don't realize it's a stressor for them. And so it does reestablish somewhat of a healthier relationship with food. So I think maybe like you said, you kind of go through a contest prep, you have a recovery period because you can't really come out of that intuitively, you probably end up putting on like 40, 50 pounds. have a controlled recovery period. And then potentially after that, when you said you're at a healthy point, kind of lower training volume, get into some intuitive eating to set up um, for an off season. So I think that sounds really great. Is there anything else intuitive eating wise, anything else you wanted to touch on there?
1: Yeah, I think that one of the problems that I have when it comes to a lot of the evidence-based crowd it, it, with intuitive eating and one of the reasons I want to talk about this topic is that it's one of those things where it has been dismissed right away without people looking at the evidence behind it. It is it, it is very frustrating because a lot of people within the evidence-based sphere put so much thought and so much research into like their protein recommendations or the cardio recommendations or whatever else they're talking about. But when it comes to intuitive eating, they just kind of like dismiss and they don't look at the evidence behind it and they don't see that it truly has a good a good standing in 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 science, especially when it comes to repairing uh, disordered. Relationships with food, with body image, and when it comes to these periods of weight maintenance, um, there is a, a great study done by Jake Leonard in 2017 where he actually compared uh, rigid control, flexible control, and uh, intuitive eating. So rigid control being like the the all or nothing approach, like I'm either eating chicken or I'm eating Ben and Jerry's. Flexible control being like what what you probably follow, Steve, where it's like okay, well I'm going to trade this food for that food. Um, if I'm over or under my calories, it won't really break me, but like I kind of want to be on, on point. Um, And then intuitive eating, again, being like the unconditional permission to eat. And they actually statistically showed that the intuitive eating and flexible control were two entirely different constructs. So they they, they, they led to two different outcomes. They were two two completely different measures. So um, that, that just kind of further shows the point that like intuitive eating isn't just not tracking macros they are two completely different things um, they found that the intuitive eating predicted lower rates of disordered eating and body image concern compared to both the flexible control and the rigid control um and one of the reasons that that it it causes was through greater body appreciation and by reducing rates of dichotomous thinking when it comes to food so this kind of shows that if if we are going to implement some type of uh, some type of intuitive eating it's probably good to do it at a point where a bodybuilder might be transitioning from like that contest prep Uh, you know we've regained some weight we have a good relationship with food let's go ahead and, and, and implement like an intuitive time period before we go ahead and mastering mini cut or whatever, because this can, can, can help you to have greater body appreciation and it can help you lower your uh, your body image concerns uh, and just lower whatever disordered eating may have come from the contest prep, because let's face it. Most people are going to de- are going to develop some type of disordered body image or some type of disordered eating from contest prep, no matter how strong you are.
0: Yeah, it's um, scary how many of the, I, I haven't had many of the habits creep back in, but I know I get these, I just call them kind of disordered habits where I eat in a specific way. I find myself, one of the things that I hate most is I start getting irritated hearing other people eat. And uh, there's just <laughs> some of the things that just, I think part and it's kind of part and parcel with when you get to those extreme levels of leanness kind of it it requires some of the disordered behaviors uh, where you are doing weird things with your food and perfectly like you said, you want to transition back out of that and that's not something you want to sustain all the time and I think that's where potentially people who compete very, very frequently don't respect that fact and they kind of, outside looking in, they have a very unhealthy relationship with food but for them it's just normal Um, and that can be kind of a scary place to be and I guess like you said, kind of periodizing it in now and then can be a really effective strategy for keeping people on kind of, yeah, psychologically in in a stable and good place.
1: Absolutely. And I think that, you know, a lot of coaches listen to this podcast and not everyone coaches bodybuilders. If you are coaching people who maybe their goal is just maintain weight, perhaps you don't need to track every macro. Like maybe you can try some intuitive eating with your clients and see uh, where that, where, where that leaves them. Perhaps you can read the intuitive eating book and see if that really helps you with your clients. Um, whether it's just a general population person that's like, okay, cool. I just want to maintain my weight now. Or it is, you know, a bodybuilder who you you just kind of want them to have a, a period of like, hey, let's chill for a second. And there's really no need to fear that like whether people are going to be able to to maintain their weight. There's actually a really good review by Billy Bill's like, then Dyke in 2013, where they reviewed 26 studies uh, looking at people who either intuitively ate or didn't. Um, and they found that 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 in studies that followed up people who did intuitive eating for like 18 months or up to two years, those people maintained their weight perfectly. Um, some people who actually implemented caloric restriction, they like reduced weight and then they pretty much just jumped right back up because most people who, had, who go on caloric restriction end up gaining the weight back. like statistically speaking, it's like some like over 90 percent of them um, versus people who just kind of learn how to eat intuitively and implement these 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 habits. They just maintain their weight over 18 months, two years. I I think that was the longest follow up they had. Uh, So if you have a client like that who's just, hey, I just want to maintain my weight coach. Let's try some intuitive eating. Maybe you can help them
2: out. hey guys hope you're enjoying the podcast just wanted to take one moment of your time to actually talk about our coaching services over at revive stronger we at revive stronger we offer an incredible premium personal coaching service just for people like you and i know you will love it do you want to work with us here's what i need you to do head over to ReviveStronger.com, go up to the coaching tab click on online coaching once there read through the requirements and what it takes to be an online client once finished hit apply now and you're only one step away from applying to our services fill out the google form and you're done and that was basically it a coach is going to reach out to you shortly and then its team revives stronger
0: cool no really great miguel um on to the next topic Let's do it. Awesome. So this one is talking about uh, NEAT, so non-exercise activity thermogenesis, uh, kind of versus, but just talking about it in relation to cardio. Uh, And I guess first of all, Miguel, if you want to just for the listeners clarify what the difference is between the two.
1: Awesome. So I think this is uh, this is going to be pretty interesting because I I'm going to make kind of a, a critique on on how the fitness industry has kind of come to use neat um so typically the way that it is 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 that we have sort of this this part of our metabolic rate that is dedicated to exercise energy expenditure and then we have neat which is a non-exercise activity uh, thermogenesis which is typically things like fidgeting uh, rearranging your posture uh maybe going to the grocery store and things like that um and there have been quite a few studies to show just how significant it can be um for example a study by levine in 1999 showed that when people were being overfed by a thousand calories every single day for uh, 10 weeks uh some individuals only gained 0.8 pounds some individuals gained nine pounds um and the, the difference, it was mainly attributed to need. So people who increase their need by like... By 800 calories per day, some people de- decrease meat by negative 70 calories per day, um, and this led to that massive fluctuation in how much people gained or lost during that during that time period. Um, there are also studies that have shown that need uh, can vary by 2,000 calories between individuals of the same body composition. So, let's if Steve and I were identical twins, he could have a, a metabolic rate of 2,000 calories, and I could have a metabolic rate of 4,000 calories. It's likely the other way around because I've seen how much Steve can eat. <laughs> um, so, because of this, people. And like okay well neat 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 is the greatest of all time we need to increase neat so now people have like started to track their steps and, and try to walk like 20 30,000 steps per day so now it's just kind of like it's muddy the water because like people are calling it neat but really it's just become a, a it's, it's become exercise really it's, it's no longer become like oh i'm subconsciously doing these, these movements it's like i'm walking and i'm calling it neat like i'm planning to walk thirty thousand steps today and i'm calling it neat because like levine 1999
0: yeah, I think that's uh, really I, I don't know. I think I don't know where I heard it. I think it might have been uh, Martin McDonald or it may have been James Creek or one of the two uh, was they introduced me to NEPA so as non-exercise physical activity which I mm-hmm. guess, again you could try and call it that but again I think if you're programming someone steps and it's above their baseline of what they would just do from daily living which would be I guess clarified as NEAT anything above their just standard amount is now going to be essentially, it's basically LIS or low intensity, steady state cardio. Exactly.
1: So the reason that I wanted to get into this topic is because I think that there has been kind of a, a swing in the pendulum where people are now saying, well, like, excessive cardio or not excessive cardio, but because that by definition is excessive, but like large amounts of cardio um, or cardio in general is pointless because we're going to have this compensation effect where if we do, let's say 600 calories worth of cardio in, in the morning, we're be, we're going to become lazy we're going to become slow. We're not going to fidget as much and our body's going to compensate for the energy to expend it by spending less energy throughout the day. And we're just kind of going to be at a, at a stalemate and it's kind of, Going to be pointless. And I think that one of the main reasons that this has been proposed is because of a, a very famous string of papers done uh, by Ponsardal on the Hadza population. Steve, I'm sure that you've heard all about these papers. Um, essentially, what they did is that these researchers followed the uh, really the, one of the last truly hunter-gatherer populations that, that there exists in the world, uh, the Hadza, and they measured their uh, their activity using GPS units, they measured their total energy expenditure using double-labeled water, and they just kind of saw how much energy these people expended. Um, and, and it was found that the Hadza population, although they, they expended a lot more uh, energy doing physical activity, Overall, their total daily energy expenditure was not significantly different from the average Western civilization person. So that's insane because these people, they're walking for like eight to nine hours a day and they aren't expending any more energy than, than, your, than your typical Westerner who like, let, let's be honest, we kind of like sit on our butts all day um, and, and, and just kind of work. Maybe we go to the gym for an hour and a half, but we don't do, we don't do a whole lot. So this has kind of been, been, been used to say, okay, well, there's only so much energy that we can expend from, from rigorous activity. Um, it's kind of been said, okay, well, these people are hunting, they're gathering, they're expending all this exercise and all this energy doing exercise, but they're really not burning all that many calories. So I think that the first thing that we need to consider when, 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 when talking about this is the fact that the Hadza actually spend the majority of their time walking. The majority of their energy expenditure is done through walking, not running. Um, they actually saw that uh, running only consisted of about like two percent of the distance that males traveled and one percent of the females traveled. That means that ninety eight to ninety nine percent of the time they expended energy was done walking. So if sort of we have this theory in the fitness industry that doing walks and, and collecting steps is better than, than doing formal cardio because it leads to less energy expenditure. Can we really make that argument based on the fact uh, based on the facts of the Hadza? because the Hadza did exactly what what we're saying is better. They did the neat, they collected the steps, they did the chores, and they saw massive energy compensation compared to that. We can't really make that argument. The second thing is that the Hatsa have been developing their physiology over centuries in an energy-restricted environment, they're hunter-gatherers. They probably have physiological changes that we don't that allow them to be more energy efficient during during hunting, during gathering, uh, during chores than we can. They probably just physiologically have things that we don't that allow them to be energy efficient. Um, Third is that these people are able to restrain their energy more than we can. So let's say, for example, you're a you're male in the heart of the population and you go out, you, you hunt, you gather, you're out for nine hours and you come back. Cool. Now, you know what? You earned the right to just lay down all day. And, and, and this is proposed. It's proposed that one of the reasons that they expend as, as much energy as someone in the Western civilization is because they have the ability to just like sit down or lay down because they just spent nine hours hunting. You don't get to do that. You don't get to come home from the gym and from your cardio session and just like zone out and have someone bring you your food and cook your food and kind of like celebrate you as a male for having gone to the gym. Like that doesn't just happen. You still have to go to work. You still have to like take your kids to school. You have to go to the grocery store. You have to cook and clean your dishes and do your laundry and all those things. You don't have the ability to restrain your energy as much as the Hadza. So I think that kind of Using this paper to to promote the idea that there is an energy stat is kind of flawed, one, because they do exactly the things that you say are neat and don't lead to energy expenditure, Uh, two, because they probably have physiological changes that allow them to be that energy efficient, and three, because they they are able to restrain energy in ways that we can't. Um, Steve, do you have any questions about that?
0: I was just thinking that sounds like the life. <laughs> I want to be one of these tribesmen who just get get to be all uh, energetic and then just get to lazy around and get fed. <laughs>
1: Except they walk all day. They don't. They don't weight lift, man. Like they don't, they don't get to have jack biceps.
0: <laughs> and I think the the thing I was thinking was it's kind of like people are hoping for magic or they're hoping to outsmart the body with like, Oh, now we can do steps and track steps. And this is going to be the new amazing tool for fat loss. And sure. I think it's an improvement of having some awareness of your needs. So you don't just kind of go to the gym for an hour and then sit on your ass all day if you have the ability to. Uh, But I think it, kind of gives the idea that at least we the combination of the two is good. So if we're doing the cardio, a lot of the people who do the cardio anyway are also tracking their steps. So as long as they're not attributing kind of their step count to that cardio, they're getting both. So it's kind of no. cardio can still be additive if you've still got the awareness of things. And I guess your main point there is like, don't poo-poo cardio just yet. I guess there's there's still people, you can only do so many steps and I guess per minute basis you're burning more calories by doing cardio and that could actually be much more efficient for someone who hasn't got time to go out for like, I don't know, four hours walking around.
1: Right, exactly. And I think that, you know, if, if we're going to make the argument that, Hey, there might be some energy compensation to cardio, then what we need to look at is not look at a hunter gatherer population whose lifestyle doesn't resemble ours at all and who probably have similar physiology than ours, we kind of need to look at people who live in a Western civilization um, or at least in a developed country. And there was a really cool study done by Flock et al where what they did is they took participants and they put them uh, on on cardio protocols uh, where they did either 300 calories or 600 calories of cardio per day for five days uh for 12 weeks so essentially these people were doing either 1500 calories of cardio per week or 3000 calories per 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 week and the authors measured their energy expenditure their dietary intake their body composition and uh, energy compensation uh so the, the way that they measured energy compensation was that they measured changes in both fat mass and fat free mass uh compared to to uh energy balance so for example if the people let's say we're at a did like 3,500 calories of cardio, but only lost half a pound Then they would be like, okay, well, half a pound is 1,750 calories. Uh, They're supposed to be at a 3,500 calorie deficit. So truly they were in a, in a 1,750 calorie deficit. If if that makes sense to the listeners. Um, So, Essentially, the point of this is is, is that the researchers wanted to find what compensation truly happened. Um, And interestingly, what they found was that the 1,500-calorie group was was truly in a 500-calorie deficit uh, because there is some compensation that happened. However, they were still in a deficit. Uh, The 3,000-calorie group was actually in a 2000 calorie deficit. So while both of them led to a compensation, doubling the cardio led to quadruple the deficit. What this shows us is that there is some energy, some energy compensation to cardio. However, it does not increase proportional to the amount of cardio being done. There might be a limit to it. Therefore the belief that we can't increase cardio because it leads to excessive energy compensation is probably wrong. It shows that we can actually out cardio the compensation effect. So this thought that like, okay, well, if we increase cardio too much, we'll just like compensate for it. It's probably wrong. There is likely a, there is likely a threshold to how much compensation can happen. And we can definitely outcardio cardio that.
0: That's really interesting. Cause you think it would continue The you think more cardio, the more compensation, but uh, if that the kind of research hasn't shown that then people haven't got the excuse to not do their cardio, Miguel, you're crushing people's hopes and dreams that no more cardio <laughs> is needed. We can all get shredded not- <laughs> without cardio. <laughs>
1: I don't know what's better because like I'll see people who are like they'll be like no cardio, but then I'll see them like it'll be like 11 p.m. They'll show their Google Watch like 10,000 more steps again. It's like you're gonna go get 10,000 steps at 11 p.m. Like how miserable is your life? Like I don't know what's worse to do like list or miss or to just like have to be consistently worrying about your steps. For me personally, I would hate to worry about my steps all day. Like I would rather just do the cardio and, and just kind of get it over with. Um, but yeah, essentially the point that I wanted to make with this is, is to show that. There is some energy compensation, but I think that the that that saying, hey, cardio is pointless because we compensate for energy is just an extrapolation on on the data that we do have. And it's just kind of people trying to swing the pendulum the other way and just kinda of being caught up in like sound bites and things that sound really, really cool to say.
0: Yeah, and I think if if you're gonna make an argument like that, you could easily argue some ways against steps in that I'm sure we get more efficient at walking uh, when well, I know I do uh, when I would get further into prep or further into diet, I start shuffling my feet. And like you, you still see compensation through if you just up your, you can up your steps infinitely and think there's no compensation throughout the day. You're going to start leaning more like the body has these mechanisms in place to try and kind of keep your homeostasis. It's not one tool. Isn't going to be able to get around all of that.
1: No, absolutely, and yeah, I think that probably what 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 is shown here is that there's you know there's only so much compensation that can happen. Like after you kind of slouch more, or maybe you're doing your work a little bit more and slouched, or you're not dapping your head to music. Like, what are you going to do after that? You know, like there there's only so much compensation that that that, that you can realistically do and still function. Not probably get fired from your job yeah, or like
0: just you lie know, down on the floor. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, have your apartment a complete mess and just like charlotte's gonna be like steve what the hell are you doing man
0: <laughs> there was one uh moment in my contest prep last time it was a depletion week and i do remember like doing my client check-ins and then sleeping on the like going to bed and then going in training coming back and sleeping uh i literally couldn't function anyway. uh but still you have to, like there's still things like you said daily tasks that have to get done uh so you know amazing uh anything else on meat versus kind of cardio that kind of discussion or can we move on to fasting now
1: um no, that's pretty much it. I mean, there was also like if, if anyone's really interested, there was also a paper by Schubert, which I like I recently put published on my on my Instagram, um, where essentially it was a very similar protocol. Um, people well not similar protocol, but similar results. People did uh, three three cardio sessions per week for four weeks, and the authors measured energy compensation. And essentially they found similar thing where uh, people compensated for some of the calories that were expended during the cardio, but not all um and, and the people who had the greatest compensation had the least weight loss the people who had uh, the least compensation had the greatest weight loss um so this just kind of shows the fact that like even even if you compensate you're still probably going to see some weight loss and that you even even if you do cardio and even if you compensate you're going to compensate for some calories but not all
0: actually on that point just a final note you talked is, i guess there's individual difference i guess i don't know if any of the studies like yes. those people compensated loads and those people just didn't compensate at all
1: so there was about a third of participants who actually compensated uh, almost as much as the cardio expended I believe that there was like two two participants who actually who actually um, compensated more than, than the cardio um, um, so yeah it, it's one of those things that it, it is individual uh, the majority of people won't so if you're kind of taking like a, a an approach as a coach kind of like the, the safest way to go is assume that people won't but then keep keeping like, you know, keep in contact with your client and, and ask what they're doing throughout the day. Like if you're giving them all this cardio and they don't seem to be losing weight, be like, yeah, like what what are you doing for the rest of the day? Um, do you find that you're still moving moving your feet or tapping your head to music? I like to work with people before they die so I can kind of like make them aware of their habits. Like ask yeah. them, you know, before they died, I want to I, I want to know like how fidgety they are. I want to know like what, the, what their habits are. I want to know like if they're the type of person who's just like annoying to everyone else because they're always moving. So then if they stop them can be like, hey, like, what was the last time that you seriously fidgeted, or that you bopped your your head to music, or that you like randomly broke down and broke, broke into dancing because you, you you heard a good song come on? And they're like, "Wow, I haven't done that in like two months." Like, okay, cool. Like, maybe you're one of those people who just has an overcompensation.
0: Really interesting, fantastic. And uh, let's go on to fasting. So, cool. I think the way I wanted to kick it off because I think when people hear fasting, probably many of the listeners and even myself personally, when I think about it in terms of body composition, I'm like. It's kind of not the best because of kind of muscle protein synthesis. You kind of miss out on potentially bolstering that and not getting the biggest kind of amount for the day, which could hamper muscle growth or even kind of lead to more muscle loss if you're dieting. But there's obviously upsides to it. And I'd love to hear those upsides that you have kind of been looking into.
1: Right. So. Actually, interestingly, uh, Grant Tinsley re- re- released a study, I believe it was earlier this year, where he actually structured kind of a, a fasting protocol that you know you and I, Steve, have probably been talking about for ages now, where we just focus on, on getting as many protein feedings in as we can to kind of like emulate having a, a longer feeding window. So essentially what he did is that people had about a nine-hour feeding window, or it actually it was like eight and a half hour feeding window where right before training they got a protein shake right after training they got a protein shake and then they just had like two or three meals after that so if you if you start off let's say for example you're you're eating you're eating window with a protein shake you train for an hour you have another protein shake that's two protein feedings within like two hours or yeah within two hours where you're the most sensitive to protein and then really all you have to do is get two more protein feedings or two or three more protein feedings within a seven hour window and you are good they showed that people were able to put on just as much muscle mass as people who were eating in a thirteen hour uh, uh eating window and having one more meal than the people who weren't fasting, so if you are fasting, it is likely that if you really prioritize your meal timing and really spread things out in a very smart way, you can probably put on as much muscle as someone who isn't fasting um but the reason that, that I want to talk about fasting is because a lot of people uh have sort of started to to tout fasting and and the benefits on health and specifically on aging uh so we've kind of again have two camps here where. You know there is a crowd of people who say that fasting is the best thing ever it's the key to living like 100 million years and there are other people who say that fasting the only benefits that it has are to do with caloric restriction um so i I think that you know we we can kind of be in the middle and and i just want to talk about the evidence that we have and the evidence that we don't have and just kind of sort of talk about why both of these sides are extrapolating on, on evidence so the four main factors that, that are implicated in, 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 in aging are that there's there oxidative damage to protein, to DNA, to lipids. There's chronic inflammation. There's an accumulation of damaged and dysfunctional proteins. Um, and then there is chronically elevated blood glucose, insulin, and IGF-1. And These are the things that mainly seem to lead to aging um, and things that all can be influenced by nutrition mainly going to focus on the cellular stuff and on on the protein accumulation because I study neurodegeneration and uh, the accumulation of damaged, misfolded and aggregated proteins uh, in in neuronal tissue seems to be one of the main factors that leads to neurodegeneration uh, and aging probably leads to Alzheimer's and things like that. Uh, So, Autophagy is sort of a, a self degradative process where uh, the body removes these misfolded, these aggregated, and these damaged proteins. Um, and you probably heard all about autophagy uh, because it is quite a beneficial uh, process that your body has. It takes all these proteins that have become damaged and they begin to accumulate in places where they shouldn't be accumulating and then cause toxicity and it like, destroys them. Um, and caloric restriction has been shown to lead to, to greater autophagy and to be able to sort of clear out these these, these, uh, these damaged proteins that we don't want in your brain. And in fact, there have been a couple of studies where if autophagy is inhibited, most of the benefits of caloric restriction are also inhibited. So this kind of shows that autophagy is, is quite the important process. Um, and if we want to kind of, uh, and if we kind of want to get, get the benefits of, of caloric restriction, we need to find a way that, we need to find a way where autophagy is increased. But researchers kind of started to realize that okay well cool we we can sort of implement caloric restriction but as you and I have seen steve as everyone who, who listens to this podcast has seen it is incredibly hard to to adhere to caloric restriction people can't adhere to caloric restriction forever and caloric restriction in the literature doesn't just mean that you're eating at a, at a, at an energy deficit it mainly means that you're eating 10 to 40% calories less than ad libitum so 10 to 40 calories less than what you would ideally eat like at will like all you can eat whatever you want like completely intuitively like 10 to 40 percent calories less than that is essentially what's considered to be caloric restriction and lead to the benefits of autophagy so uh, researchers have kind of looked into fasting because what fasting can do is it leads to a a a period of time where where you're not eating there's tissue breakdown there's decreased mTOR activity uh which kind of sounds like heresy to us um and, and there's a utilization of different metabolic pathways um and what this has kind of been shown to lead is that within like a 16 to 24 hour period fasting and can increase autophagy and cellular repair. And a couple of studies have shown that uh, intermittent fasting can actually increase uh, both the number, the size, and the signal intensity of autophagomes in neuronal tissue um, and the expression of them. And this has been shown in healthy rats, in ALS rats, in Alzheimer rats. So fasting has been shown in rats that it can be beneficial to autophagy. Um, and in a calorie equated study in humans by Harvey et al. It was shown that uh, people who were following a 25% reduction of weekly calories uh, who were either eating continuously or implementing like a two day fast. So either they restricted calories every day or just did like two, two days of, of like, fasting. Um it led to similar weight loss. however, uh, the fasting group had better improvements in insulin sensitivity in a hormone called adiponectin, which is important in insulin sensitivity. Um, they also had a reduction in, in fast acting oxida- oxidative stressors and in slow acting uh, protein aggregates, which I said are the main uh, which seem to be one of some of the main uh, causes of uh, of neurodegeneration. So essentially, what we see here is that we have rodent studies that, that show uh, that, that fasting can be beneficial, at least mechanistically, we have some some data to show that fasting can be beneficial uh, for the brain uh, and to sort of uh, reduce oxidative stress and accumulation of, of protein aggregates. We have some human studies showing that it might be poss- possible that, uh, that, that fasting increases autophagy and removes these uh, slow acting protein aggregates. Um, but what's really important to note here is that we don't have very, very well controlled human studies to say, well, fasting definitely increases uh, a a rate of healthy aging or or fasting definitely uh, attenuates cognitive decline or anything like this. We don't have the data that we need in order to say, hey, the benefits of fasting only come from caloric restriction or fasting has more benefits than caloric restriction. And the reason that I wanted to address this is because it's become very, very popular to say that well, fasting has no benefits, it's all due to caloric restriction. We don't quite have the data to show this because we don't have very well-controlled human studies looking at the, at the biochemical changes, looking at structural changes, um, and, and really looking at cognitive changes in response to fasting over a long period of time. We have this in rats that, that shows some mechanistic benefits, but we don't have it in humans. So the point of this sort of segment of, of the podcast isn't to say fasting is the way to go. And it isn't to say fasting is not the way to go. It is saying that we need to be a little bit more careful about how we're interpreting these things because we can't say it either way. It's The point of this is to say that fasting may be beneficial, it may not be beneficial, but we can't really make a conclusive statement either way. We can't just chalk it up to caloric restriction and we can't also not do that.
0: No, I think that's really interesting because I think at least in the, like the, I don't know how much... Um, you stay on top of like the biohacking. I don't know if you're aware of this, you must be aware of this term, but oh goodness, um, I know they're big on like fasting and these approaches. And I imagine they are kind of being, putting too much kind of emphasis and too much into the studies that we have available, but equally, um, for the evidence-based crowd, I- I'm sure are putting too much of like stock in the fact that there isn't evidence there and it comes back to that saying like absence of evidence is an evidence of absence and you're essentially just saying this, we can't put us like a stamp either way now uh we're, we require more evidence before you can go around saying either which way
1: exactly and i think that the, the reason that I've been sort of developed a passion for this topic specifically is because neurodegeneration is one of the nastiest things that we can see. And I think that for evidence-based practitioners to go around saying, no, fasting is done. Like there's no cognitive benefit to it. I think that's equally as irresponsible as people who say like, no, like fasting is the best thing ever. Like what, what if it turns out to be beneficial and we're just been starting off the wrong thing for like five to 10 years?
0: You know, I, I don't, I don't want to be on that. No. And out of interest, Miguel, what's the kind of uh, what time period of fasting has been shown to like see the benefits? Is there a kind of is there anything you would practically apply? Are you practically applying anything for yourself or
1: I actually end up end up fasting most of the day simply because like life. I don't end up yeah, because life, like I just get up and I have to be like go to like go to classes, be in the lab, blah, blah, blah. And then like all of this before I know it, I fasted. Um, but after like 16, 24 hours, we do see an increase in apophagy um, and, and, and a decrease in blood glucose and, and, and some tissue breakdown uh, that we, that, that seems to be beneficial. Um, there may be, benefits to like prolonged fast after 24 hours. But after that, like the research is very, very murky, like even on rats, because if we fast a rat for like 24 hours, that cannot be translated with any accuracy to a human fasting for 24 hours. So as I would not really be comfortable talking about anything other than like 16 to 24 hours because we really don't have that evidence. Um, and it's very hard in humans because realistically we can't be like, hey, can you just intermittent fast for like five years and then we'll see whether or not you develop dementia or not. Um, and, and also, even if we were to do a short term study, it's very invasive to get neuronal tissue and to actually study the the, the cellular and uh, molecular things that we need to study in humans. That's why a lot of these studies are done in rats. So. We don't have the evidence right now. Maybe unlikely that we'll ever have the evidence. We'll, we'll mostly just have like good markers of the evidence. Um, maybe some imaging stuff in the future, if we can, if we can get people to adhere to it, but there does seem to be good mechanistic reasons for why fasting would be beneficial. But again, we can't really say either way and really kind of being in one camp or the other is, I, I think is equally as ignorant.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I think I've heard, uh, some people. Potentially using like cycling calories to be in like a maybe a deficit or even fasting some days and kind of saying they're doing this for the insulin sensitivity increase or potentially they just reduce their carbs for a day and they have higher fats again trying to get this insulin sensitivity increase. And I think from what I know, it's kind of been somewhat poo pooed because it's short term. And like you said, right now these studies are short term and whether or not it's realistic to get them long term, it's difficult. And you can say this for so much research, even hypertrophy research, the training studies are only done for so long. Do we know it's going to continue to trend like this for the next kind of few months? We don't, and that's always going to be a limitation.
1: And also what we don't know is how long-term the benefits to fasting are. Like, well, let's say for example, I don't know, you fast for like 10 years and then all of a sudden like you're 70 and you're like, okay, well screw this. I no longer want to fast. Like dude, do, do, does it get reversed like super, super, super quickly? Or is it something where like, okay, I did this for 10 years, so I'll get like 10 years of neuroprotection, you know? Like, or like, do I get neuroprotection that the last for the rest of my life? Or is it something where the effects, I just see them while I'm fasting?
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. It's something, yeah, you wouldn't want to, likewise, like either direction, you wouldn't want to, right now, I guess there isn't enough evidence to say, like, if it's going to impede your lifestyle massively to fast, Certainly, you wouldn't put that upon someone, but if someone wants to try it, you wouldn't equally say, Oh, that's completely pointless. Don't worry. Like, don't waste your time. Uh, It's just one of those areas that's a little bit murky for us at the moment.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I have friends who, um, for example, their entire family has developed Alzheimer's and they're like, I'm going to do a ketogenic diet. I'm like, You do you. I am not going to get, I'm not going to say anything. Like, it could be beneficial, could not be beneficial, but like, if that's what you feel you need to do, you do that.
0: Awesome. Fantastic. I think we've basically covered everything we wanted to do in this episode at the moment. And I think I can say the same for all the listeners. It was fantastic, Miguel. Uh, it's always great chatting to you. So much information coming out of that brain, uh, which is great to capture. So <laughs> I think this has been a unique episode. Uh, lots of points we haven't touched upon before. I want to make sure people, if they want to kind of find out more about yourself, I know you're still you're still there on social media however you are really busy there's still great information you're putting out so where should people try and kind of find more about you miguel
1: uh well you can find me uh at mblacute so that's m b l a c u t t on instagram i have a website miguelblacute.com com you can find my articles on revivestronger.com. and uh, i have a podcast called the flexible dieting lifestyle podcast um that podcast is more on like taking science and breaking it down for the general population so if you have any clients who like they just want to understand kind of like the basics of how these processes work from an evidence-based standpoint that's that's the purpose of that podcast
0: fantastic and i'll make sure as always to have that all linked below thank you guys for listening thank you again for coming on miguel and we'll catch you soon Thank you for having me. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My
2: name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, But each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram. But there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really
0: cool community for people within our little niche it is gonna be a website. They will get early access to
2: our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there, you can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. It's also gonna be Courses on there. Courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're going to have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library.
0: The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through
2: those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super
0: excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. and I'd love you to be part of
2: it. You will get so much out of that.
0: I'll see you inside.